Well, today we're going to continue uh, discussing what we've been discussing the last few weeks on, our, on, on your tough questions, the questions you submitted. And, and today we get a doozy. Uh, it's one of, the, one of those questions that, uh, to me, brings up an issue that no matter how much I believe this to be true, no matter how much I experience God's presence in my life, no matter how much I become more and more convinced every day of how much He loves me and how He is the only God. When I hear the Scripture, He is the way, the truth, and the life, that sounds great. But then He goes on to say, and no one comes to the Father or to God but through me. This exclusive claim of Christianity is something that quite frankly, guys, I don't know if you feel this way, but when I say it, even though I believe it, it makes me wince. It makes me think inside, well, how can that be? You know, how can that be? I mean, the, what about the guys in, in tribal Pakistan or, or in Iran or, or somewhere on an island in the South Pacific, we always bring up these illustrations, who, who maybe in their whole lifetime never hear the word J-E-S-U-S? How can it be for them? How can it be fair? After all, why is Jesus the only way? Don't all religions lead to Him? Isn't, isn't, isn't God able to take all of the impulses of our, of our desire for faith and, and use all of them to point to Him? And Don't all, all religions have common ground? Because that's the argument. That's the predominant argument of our society today is all religions have common ground. In fact, a lot of people would distill uh, faith and religion down to two things there, among all religions, that there, is this, that there is this fatherhood of God and there's this brotherhood of mankind. And, and I know there's at least some commonality because the commonality between all religions is that we all desire to know God. We all desire for something better. We all desire for peace. We have, we, have this, we have this hope that there's something beyond us, a meaning beyond us. And, and we do share some of those things in common. We probably, even as most faiths, share, the, share in common the aversion to judgment, the fact that, that we don't like saying this exclusive statement, that we don't like judging other people and saying other people are right or wrong. That's not comfortable for anyone, is it? But the question is really bigger than that. The question is bigger than just, are there some commonalities? Are there, are there moral equivalents between the faiths? And, and the question is bigger than, than, than these common desires. It's, it's the question of God and the question of who is God. And, and if there is truth about who is God, the, the unfortunate thing about truth is that truth demands an exclusionary answer. It demands truth that somebody is right and somebody is wrong. And we can't get away from that. And if there's common ground among the faiths, then that common ground is found in who God is, not in necessarily similarity of morality, similarity of desire, similarity of hope for transcendent purpose, but it has to be found in who God is. 
And we're going to deal a little bit today with, with this topic from a different, couple different angles. We're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about it from the aspect of the problem of evil because the reality is there's nothing that defines who God is for us better and more clearly than our answers to this whole problem of good and evil. So we're going to spend just a little bit of time on that but not nearly as much as I planned on last week. So if you want to know more, uh, the Living the Quest After the Message email that we've been sending out the last few weeks or posting on Facebook is going to have a bunch of links and a bunch of things to little videos on YouTube or other things that you can look at to, to go deeper in what, than what we're going to go today. But this, is, this question is, if Jesus is the only way, then is that fair? To me, that's really more of the crux of the struggle. It's the emotional question because it, 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 it goes back to the, even the questions that were submitted by you. Questions like, I, I prayed for uh, my dad or my brother and they died without knowing him. Or, or, or I've got this friend at work and, and he died without knowing you. How can that be fair? Or, or, or I've got a friend from, from overseas that I met or, or a missionary who talked about a friend from overseas who had never heard Jesus' name but he died. How is that fair? Or, or we make it just global and, and just say these blanket statements about the kid who t- grows up in tribal Pakistan and, and never leaves, but lives and dies in one little village. And it's an important question because we've already said that the Christian God, the God we serve, is both all-powerful and all-good. And if he's not fair, if he's not just, then he's not good. And so it's a really important question. And, and to kind of set this up today, there's this, there's this old ancient parable, this old ancient fable that is told over and over again. You'll probably recognize it when you see it, that basically sets the stage for the argument that there's multiple ways to God. And we're going to let you see that in a little animated form. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, for all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to boil. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the dusk cried, Oh, what have we here, so very round and smooth and sharp? To me it is mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hand, thus boldly up he spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand, and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like, is mighty plain, quoth he. This clear enough the elephant is very like a tree.
This is one of the most famous arguments for many ways to God. And, and the moral of the story, as you can see, is that, is that it's a bunch of blind people trying to go and figure out this same thing. And, and we all come to the conclusion that it's something different. And, and really the whole, the whole idea behind it is that as we grope for faith, we're really all blind people just, just looking for the right thing. But you see, it, it, it's nice. It's a beautiful story. It, it sounds so inclusive. But the problem is the Christian story does not fit in this fable. It does not fit in this parable at all. Because you see, this parable basically would say that Jesus, Muhammad, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, Hindu leaders, they would all be the blind man going and feeling the elephant and coming up with different conclusions. But the problem is that the Christian story doesn't fit because in the Christian story, God is the elephant and Jesus is God. He's not one of the blind men. He's not one of the prophets seeking around trying to find out who God is. There's, not, there's a complete disconnect between this argument. And, and Jesus, in describing this, says in John 14, 8-9, He says, How can you say, show us the Father? Or, or He's saying, how can you say, show us God Almighty? Then He claimed, anyone who has seen Me has seen the Father. Jesus isn't the blind prophet teaching about God. Jesus is God incarnate. And Scripture says that the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. He's not another being describing Him. He is God. Now, the truth claims of Jesus are way too unique to fit in any other belief system. And, and, and yet, the American streams of faith that we, that we wrestle with today Almost all of the popular streams are related in some way to the New Age movement. Even if you look at the liberal churches, their faith is becoming New Age. It's more like New Age than it is Christian. And, and, and the New Age faith, as we look at it, is built on something called pantheism. And if you remember back to your philosophy classes, pantheism is made up of two words, pan for all and theism for God. And it means that basically the argument is that God is in everything. And He's not just in everything. God is everything. And the, the ramifications of this, as we talked about last week, is, is basically when we address the problem of evil, if you take this view of life that God, or, or as the New Age calls it, the cosmic soul or the cosmic energy or, or other terms that they use to describe it, God is in all. He's in the rocks. He's in the stones. He's in this. He's in me. He's in you. And basically it breaks down several things for us. It breaks down what we talked about a couple weeks ago is the foundation for the Christian faith, the creator-created relationship. Because if God is in everything, if God is in you and me and, and it's all together, then, then we're all gods. And that's what the, those faiths assert. It's based upon Hinduism and other Eastern religions. There's also similarities to a lot of American uh, uh, native religion. And the problem of evil in this, if God is in everything, is that you'll see in two different streams happen in the New Age movement. Either evil is denied as an illusion, which we talked about last week and doesn't make sense to very many of us, or evil and good are both in God. And they both come from Him. And neither one is palatable 
to what Christianity teaches. Because in Christianity, God is all good. And from a philosophical standpoint, we dealt with it last week. You know, it's impossible for us to find common ground and to make the argument for multiple ways to God unless we have not studied what the other religions actually speak. Not just the one I've mentioned this morning, but the others as well that I'm not mentioning. Because there are unique claims in Christianity. Yes, there are similar moral claims. There are similar moral teaching. There are good things that, that other faiths teach about morality. But when it comes down to how they could be similar, you can't say they're similar based upon morality alone. If they're really examining the same elephant, if they're really examining God, at least God is a living, breathing, moral thing that has similar skin all over it. At least there's similarities in the definition of God. But there aren't similarities in the definition of God between most religions and Christianity. So, the bigger question to me, and if you want to think more on that topic itself, because we've dealt with it so quickly, you'll, you'll see it in some of the links we send. The bigger question, is God fair? Is He really fair? See, this is the heart-wrenching question for us. This is the question that comes back to the relationships we have of people who did not know Christ. This is where the rubber meets the road. And here are a couple of biblical reflections that I want to walk you through. We've already established that, that for the Christian faith, this whole idea of the Creator... And the created relationship is the foundation. And we've talked so much about how God is good and and how we believe He's wooing people back to Him. The difficulty becomes for those who don't hear His name. But if we really think about this Creator of all, this God who created all of us, even the people in Iran, even the people in Pakistan, is it not plausible to think that this Creator is some way in some fashion, showing himself to them, even if they do not know the name of J-E-S-U-S. Romans 2 talks about this. It says, Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have law... Now, now stop there. The Gentiles who do not have law. What he's saying is, these are people who know nothing about the faith. He's addressing directly this issue of what we've talked about. People who have never heard this name. When they do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law, and again, stop there, the requirements of the law, they show that the requirements of the law are God revealing himself to us, revealing himself, telling us who he is and what he expects and what he wants relationship to be like with us. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. And we established and talked about last week that the, that the only reasonable explanation for a conscience that has any uniformity among humankind is that we are created in the image of God. And that conscience, even though it is corrupted by sin, is still a reflection of the image of God in us. And the Bible here is saying that Conscience in and of itself is God revealing himself to mankind, whether they know his name or not. But interestingly enough, the Bible goes deeper. 
on this issue of how he shows himself to people of different faiths. And, and it's really interesting because it's found in Acts 17. And, and we see Paul in Athens. And there's a lot more to this interaction, but we're going to start in verse 22. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in in temples built by human hands and He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and He marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, there's a couple of different things I want to highlight here. First, I think verses 23 and 28 are really interesting to look at. 23 says, So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship." And 28 says, as some of your poets have said, we are your offspring. And here's an interesting thing. Paul walks around for days. And then he comes and talks to him about the fact that, yes, your worship, you are pursuing, you are sensing God correctly. You are worshiping Him. You are looking for Him. There's something that God is already revealing in your life that is causing you to pursue this. And he says, not only that, but even some of your prophets, some of your religious people have discerned some of it correctly, that God is indeed your creator, that there is this amazing God out here. And even though they're still ignorant because our tendency when God exposes himself to us is at first to, to filter it through our own grid. And when we filter it through our own grid of skepticism or our own grid of pain or our own grid of sin, we tend to, we tend to cloud what he really looks like and we corrupt what he really looks like and we struggle with ignorance because of sin. But God is clearly at work here. And if you look at Paul's interaction in, in the place called Lystra, in another part in Acts, it's, it has the same feeling to it. And, and the interesting lesson here for me that came out of this and, and looking at this again is, what if our primary job in bringing others to faith in Jesus is simply to discover and point out where God is already at work? Think about it. Paul said to heathen, pagan, unbelievers that God was already at work in you. And he just started to point to that and say, see, this is where God's at work. Can we trust that God is already at work in people? So often we approach, uh, you know, we approach people trying to convince them of faith by, by arguing them, by rationalizing them into the kingdom, by, by, by convincing them. But, but Paul spent time listening and, and seeing where God was at work and and helping point that out so that people would understand that's just not coincidence. That's God. So that we get to know Him. Not based upon somebody else's arguments. Not based upon somebody's rules. But from our personal experience. And, 
And, and we see this in our world today. We see God at work in other faiths. I don't know how many of you are a student of, of church history in America, but about 15 years ago there was, this, there was this cult called the Worldwide Church of God that in one day became a biblical-believing organization. God had been at work in them. God had been wooing them, even in their ignorance, even in their lostness, even in their heresy. God was at work touching them. And in one day, the whole movement became faithful followers of Jesus, becoming convinced of who he was. I worked with a church planner in Salt Lake City for years, and and he used to tell me every now and then, he said, you know, Ross, I think something like that might happen for the Mormons because of what I see God doing and working in the Mormon church. Can we trust that God is working in people who are Hindus, in Buddhists, in Muslims, in New Agers, in whatever faith we can think of? And then there's a further question, though. What, What about the child in Pakistan? He never has the chance to hear. Can Jesus reveal himself to others without them knowing his name, J-E-S-U-S? Well, here's my answer, and I, I, think, this is, I think this is very biblical. I'm not going to quote Scripture on it right now, but I'm just going to say it this way. Does an illiterate, deaf, mute person have to be able to say the name of their dad in order to know him? Does an infant child have to be able to say the name and spell the name of their dad or their mom in order to know and love and trust them? See, I'm convinced not. And and here's part of the reason why as well. You read missionary stories like stories about Richard Wormbrand who was was imprisoned in Russia for his faith and and a story about his interaction with a Soviet guard and he comes in, the Soviet guard comes into his cell and he he starts telling him about Jesus and, 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 you know, normally if you do that you might get beaten but for whatever instance in this day they ended up, the guy ended up starting dancing all all over the cell. And when he got done telling him about Jesus, the, the guy said, I finally know the name of the person I've been worshiping all this time. Or you hear the story of a missionary in China and going and talking to this Chinese monk and he tells him the name, he tells him the story of Jesus and the whole time this Chinese monk is, is crying. And, and at the end he asks him, why are you crying? And, and the Chinese monk says, the whole time you've been telling me the story, I felt the Spirit saying to me, now you know who I am. He's telling you about me. And years ago, I read a story about a, a missionary going into a group and translating the Bible into the language. And when they started to get to the point of translating one of the stories of Jesus, the whole tribe erupted in joy and said, "We." and they'd been resistant before that, they erupted in joy and said, we will follow him because he'd already revealed to us this story. And we've been waiting for somebody to tell us about this. Is it possible to know Jesus? without knowing J-E-S-U-S as his name? I think it certainly is the answer. Paul affirms the work of the Spirit of God, continually trying to reveal himself. In verse 27, he says, God did this. God distri- what The context is God distributed people all over the world and nations all over the world. And, and somehow the way he set the boundaries, the way he established people in different parts of the world... He says this about it. God did this so that they would seek Him. 
and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. You see, God's not far from anyone. He is constantly trying to show himself to people. He's constantly trying to speak to people and help them know him through conscience and through his spirit and through other people and through circumstances. He's constantly trying to reveal himself. As a side note, just just because it says it in this passage, you'll notice that Paul makes a very big deal even in this passage about the creator-created relationship being the key to our faith. But here's a question. Does the fact that God is constantly revealing himself to all people remove any urgency for us as Christians to love the world to Christ? And the answer is a resounding no. Because even in this passage, he says, and perhaps they'll reach out to him. Paul, Jesus, the whole Bible is very aware of the fact that sin makes us take what what God is trying to reveal to us and we twist it, we cloud it, we put it into our worldview, we, we, we submit it to our own selfish desires, and we refuse to submit to Him. And there is this urgency that the gospel gives us that we are people who God wants us to reach people. God wants us to help take that cloudedness of sin away that prevents them from receiving what He's already trying to do for them. And as I pondered this and and thought more about, you know, the child in Pakistan type of scenario, what really stood out to me was a kind of a sobering thought. So often we treat sin as an individual thing. But sin is so very much more than that. Sin is a generational thing. The things that I don't deal with in my life... Hopefully, by God's grace, my kids won't have to deal with, but the likelihood is they will struggle with the same things I struggle with. Is it fair that people born into other faiths are lost and not going to heaven? You see, this question fundamentally goes back to who is to blame for good and evil? Is God to blame? Well, we already talked about that not being consistent with Christianity. That goes back to the blueprint view, and it's not biblical, and it's not Christian. From a Christian perspective, sin corrupts us and others. Joseph Smith and Brigham Brigham Young's sin has affected millions of people who walk in a clouded view of what God is trying to show them of himself. And they walk in unrepentant sin. The 60s sexual revolution that many of us grew up in or or have reaped the benefits from, if you can call them benefits, have resulted in broken families, have resulted in sexual perversion available like never before in our country, have involved violation and, and abuse and struggles with sexual identity. And the whole point is that the sin of one generation oftentimes becomes worse in the next generation in that same area. The sin of the church in America over the last 50 years has been making our faith more about rules and morals, more about staying away from the bad things and becoming good enough than it has made it about relationship and faith in who Jesus is and about kindness and walking as Jesus walked. And the result is... Over 60% of the churches in America will likely be dead in 20 years, and millions of people have walked away from the church even though they have never known Jesus. 
because all they've known is a corruption of Christianity that isn't even faith at all. One man, thousands of years ago, decided to make another man a slave. And millions and millions of people later have suffered slavery throughout the centuries. Sin makes not only a difference in our life, but if we don't deal with it, it makes a difference in other people's lives that's not good. And yet one man who we celebrated this last Monday, Martin Luther King, and many others, can stand up, repent of the evil, take it on, and 30 years later, there can be an amazing difference. And whether we agree with these people or not, the reality is the most powerful man and the most powerful woman in America today are black. And that's the kind of difference that one person and other people gathering around that who will decide to live differently, to attack evil, to walk with others as they walk through their pain to discover freedom, that's the kind of difference that can be made through one person. And that's really the kind of difference we're asking all of us to make in going above and beyond. Just doing something simple. Go go to one or two people this year and walk with them through their pain. Because as we've said from the very beginning, this whole problem of evil, this whole problem of sin, isn't something that is going to be answered just by our answers up here. Our answers help. Our feelings tend to follow our thinking. So it's good that we deal with it. But the reality is people need to experience love in order to be able to experience a Creator who loves them in the midst of evil. What if our first priority as Christians, as Christians who want to make a difference, as Christians who want to follow God in what He wants us to do in life, who want to be obedient, what if our first priority was simply finding out where God was already at work in the people around us who don't know Him. What if our primary responsibility, more than convincing, more than answers, was to simply point out and say, God is blessing you here. So they can put a wonderful Creator and His name on what's already happening in their life. The Creator who knows even the hairs of our head can be trusted to be and is at work in everyone. Thinking about that, how does that change the way you think about the people you know who are struggling with with their faith? How does that change the way we look at the people around us who are spouting all sorts of, of, of philosophies that seem deceptive? Can we learn to discover where God is already at work in our, in our Muslim neighbor, in our New Age friend, in our atheist, in our agnostic, and, and just point to what He's already doing and see God work? I want you to take just a moment. I want, I want you to take it one step further. Again, I want you to close your eyes. I won't necessarily have you close your eyes every message. I know I've been doing that a couple times here, okay? But just close your eyes, would you? I want you to have the face of a person you know who does not know Christ come to your mind. And I want you just quietly for a second ask God, where are you already at work in their life? 
Lord, I pray that you would make us good at sensing your presence and glorifying your presence in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. Lord, that we'd learn to not dismiss what you're doing as, as coincidence, but that we'd recognize it and give you glory. Lord, I just pray that we would be a place where people would discover you because we walk with other people. We bless them in their journey of finding you. We help them see through the clouds to see a, a clear picture of you. Where we are people who are more about love and about patience and about kindness than about answers and arguments. And Lord, may you prosper our work. May many, many people who are searching for you, who have walked away from faith or walked away from church, find you because of what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.